0: hi if i could take a moment of your time before we start if you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to that would be really helpful it helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward thanks one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care
1: Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Fresh, Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose,
0: no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And with us today, we have Magnus Walker. Hello.
2: Hey, man. Top of the morning. Greetings from a slightly overcast downtown LA. I'm happy to be on the show with you and uh, hope all is well in jolly old Englandland. <laughs>
0: yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. It's a, it's an interesting one, this one, because it's, it's the sort of end of the day for me and the, the start of the day for you. Can you tell the audience a little bit about just sort of short summary of like who you are and what you do?
2: Sure, no problem. Magnus Walker, born in Sheffield, uh, July 7th, 1967. Left school at 15, was into heavy metal, rock and roll. Uh, came to America as a 19-year-old, worked on a summer camp for underprivileged inner-city kids in Detroit in 1986. So that was a big culture shock coming from Sheffield to Detroit. But in a way, there were quite a lot of similarities. Former industrial towns that had sort of fallen, you know, past their glory a little bit. So that was how I originally came to America. And then I took a trailways bus from Detroit to LA, arrived less than three miles from where I'm currently sat at Union Station in 1986. And to me, that was heaven. It was sex, drugs, rock and roll. And I've lived in LA since 1986. So I spent 19 years of my life in sunny Chef, and the past 35 years of my life in LA. So I'm sort of more of an Angelino, but obviously you never forget where you come from. Last uh, two years ago, I became a US citizen, which I was very proud of, but I did keep dual citizenship. So got my UK passport and uh, been residing in LA, like I said, since 86. I'm a man with a beard. I'm into music, rock (laughs) and roll, architecture, and I am a car guy. I describe it as an out-of-control hobby. Porsche is my passion, my drug of choice, my religion, whatever you want to call it. But ultimately, I just like things with wheels that go fast, the journey of life, and Uh, sharing fellow stories with car collector people and enjoying the roads and drives around the world. So there's a pretty short bio for those that don't know. I'm Magnus Walker. I'm a man with a beard.
0: (laughs) And I like coffee. I think I love coffee, although I've drunk too much today, so I'm I'm dialing it out this evening. You've got to stay Um,
2: caffeinated. That's my thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think I, I first came across you with the film Urban Outlaw, which I was just looking it up, and I know it's, it's it's on your YouTube channel, but I feel like it came out a long time before then. Did it come out on Vimeo? Yeah, it
2: came out on Vimeo. I mean, uh, you... Urban Outlaw was a 32 minute short documentary film that was a really the vision and wisdom of a Canadian film director called Tamir Moscovici. We became fast friends, but uh, Tamir approached me back in 2011. He'd seen a few articles, probably the the main one I did was in Total 9-11, English Portion Magazine, back in 2011. And I had a Sort of a rambling thread on a place called Pelican Parts, which is a Porsche forum, and it was literally Porsche hobby out of control, collection or something like. that. <laughs> and I, I've been running that since about 2010, and back then, 10, 12 years ago, I wasn't really too computer savvy. But Tamir approached me and basically said, "Hey, you know, I've seen what you've posted online, read a few articles, but I believe there's possibly more to your story." And Tamir is and was a commercial film director, a Porsche enthusiast, and Initially, he just wanted to create like a short YouTube three to five minute documentary film for his reel. So he shot me an email. We had a couple of phone calls late 2011 and early 2012. We we set about filming for four days what would become a 32 minute short documentary film. And it was a passion project for Tamir. He literally flew down from Toronto on his frequent flyer miles. I'd never met him. Happened to hire a very talented ramshackle crew for pennies on the dollar. And then the next... Four days we just made this film which sort of took a life of its own. You know, it's it it's a journey of my life, and Porsche is a vehicle that takes you on the journey of my life. But Urban Outlaw really is is my story about having a, a dream as a kid and moving to America and the challenges that came along. And I navigate through that journey with a Porsche and share my passion through it. And interestingly, we shot the film in February of twenty twelve. And then we released a three-minute trailer in June of 2012, which went viral. I didn't really know what viral (laughs) meant because at that time I wasn't on Instagram, wasn't on Facebook. You know, the iPhone had just come out and, you know, all these guys that were flipping around on the phone, I'm like, who are these guys? I still got my (laughs) Motorola Razor flip phone. But anyway, the trailer came out and, you know, I'd posted about it a little bit on the Pelican Parts thing. So we knew there was a little bit of a buzz, but... The first day it came out, it got picked up by Top Gear. And we didn't know if 500 people were going to see it, 5,000 or whatever it was. So Top Gear sort of put it out there. And then over the next week or so, it just kept getting bigger and bigger because other automotive blogs obviously picked up on it and it sort of went viral. And that was the first beginning of it. And then Tamir, being kind of savvy, he got the film into the London Raindance Film Festival. So, you know, the film came out, well, it premiered at the London Rain Dance Film Festival late September 2012. And so we ended up flying to London from L.A. because, hey, you know, it's a film premiere. You might as well go to your own film (laughs) premiere and, you know, it probably wouldn't happen again. And ended up showing in um, Leicester Square Piccadilly on a Saturday, on a rainy Saturday night. It screened about 10. 10pm to a sold out crowd. And it was great because people came in from the community. I had a buddy that drove in from the Netherlands. We sold out this screening at the film festival and then it went online October 15th, 2012. So, you know, it's been out almost nine years and uh, the past sort of nine, 10 years since that film came out of my life, it's been a whirlwind of, I've not really changed, but more people are aware of who I am and what I do. And you know, in a couple of weeks of the film coming out, I got a letter from Porsche saying how they'd seen the film because in the film I talk about writing a letter to Porsche and having a poster on the wall as a 10-year-old and I ended up yeah. visiting Porsche, and then got invited to all these events all over the world and I had the time to go and generally just said yes to anything that sounded cool and ended up on this whirlwind global trek for almost the past 10 years, you know, driving across Australia, driving in Colombia, doing the million, Mili, but all of that, came from really the film urban outlaw that was the catalyst to getting me out there in in sort of the bigger world you know i was probably known locally because i'd been building some cars and doing some track days and stuff like that but urban outlaw just sort of opened me up to a a broader audience which then led on to doing other things such as a ted talk that i did in 2014 i didn't even know what a ted talk was and i would say 99 percent of the people that watch my ted talk which is called go with your gut feeling were not car people had no idea what i was about but there was a little spark of inspiration can do spirit that came across in the ted talk which then sort of led to a couple of years later i had an autobiography book come out but all these things came from the film the film was the stepping stone the catalyst into putting me out there in the in the broader arena so that's kind of how my journey at least up to this point has been over the past few years
0: yeah i think when it it first came out and i'm just thinking back now so I saw. I remember that that happening, and I don't know if the, at the time when you might remember this, but um, whether that many owners of collections ever told their stories, like you, I think it was. It's it's more common now, but it's still not that common of you know collectors or people in the industry actually talking about their life and their journey. And that sort of stuff and then the cars along the way often it's like here's my garage and then here's my and then just list of models and then that's kind of it do you think do you think that was part of it or
2: for me it was very organic you know my background i'm a clothing designer i had a clothing company and then i got into the film location business and I own property in downtown LA, an old 1902 building that I'm selling right now. So, uh, the point to my ramble here is I'd been around filming for quite some time, and people had always said, Oh, we should make a little film of you driving your cars. And believe it or not, I was not interested at that point. You know, I was a little bit under the radar, other than me controlling this out of control hobby collection thing on Pelican. I wasn't really interested in putting something out, but the conversation with Tamir just really clicked and resonated. And for me, it was kind of like, how bad can this be? I'm going to drive my cars for four days. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I'd never been in front of the camera, really. You know, I didn't grow up documenting my life on a phone or, or an 8 millimeter camera as a kid. So it was exciting to me. And I was at the point in my life where it was just exciting. It wasn't like I needed to prove anything or there was a master plan goal. It was very organic. And everything in my life has been very organic. And it, was, it really was like, how bad can this be? Let's do it. But to me, it was, you know, he had a vision and he was very cinematic. And he was able to capture the moments. Like he'd ask me a question, obviously, I ramble on. He'd say, what does Porsche mean to you? And I'd go on like a 10 minute ramble and then something would come in. i would go Porsche passion. And that became a thing. So he had a very talented team of cinematographers. It was a small crew, literally five, six people. And as it was a passion project, it took quite some time because everyone was sort of doing a favor when it came to editing. And you got to remember we shot for four days. So he must have had at least 20, 30 hours of footage. Well, more because it was, we ended up shooting everything on two Canon 5d cameras. So just going through the footage, You know, I'm finding the good bits, you know, discarding the bits that didn't work. But the final vision was extremely well crafted and extremely well edited. And it was very cinematic. And you kind of hit the nail on the head. Back then, it was pre-Petrolicious. People weren't making cinematic, artsy films of their collection. Obviously, people have been filming cards forever. But the timing of what Tamir and I did was purely organic. It wasn't planned. But... In a way, looking back, it sort of was the catalyst for a lot of content that came after it, the way it was shot, very cinematic. It wasn't just, let's splash on a couple of GoPros and rip around. There's a flow and a pace to the film, a journey. It peaks and flows and takes a breather and these long cinematic scenes. And it's just a really well-shot, well-edited documentary film. Uh, One of the greatest things it came from, it really was getting emails from Wives and girlfriends who would email me and say, hey, I watched that and I finally understand what my partner's obsession is about. I'm not a car guy, but I got into your film because it's a journey. And so in a way, the film opened up the car world to an arena that wasn't necessarily in it before. You know, people that might not have been interested or didn't really figure out what it was about. Cause you know, car guys tend to be obsessive. I mean, I guess it's a human nature thing. You know, people like to collect whether it's stamps, guitars, cars, watches, and, you know, sometimes the, the minutia of people talking about certain things can become boring to, to even myself, you know, like sometimes car guys, and I, 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 do it myself. We ramble on about certain things that maybe other people don't care about, but to me, it was just able to capture the essence and the pace where he made it interesting for everyone to get into and I think it did sort of spawn a genre of filmmaking or automotive filmmaking that was possibly a little bit more cinematic rather than just going down a shopping list menu of, hey, this is, you know, A to Z, you know, because it's really more about the journey and the moments. And so to me, it captured that really well. And to this day, I thank him for that because if it wasn't for the film, I'd probably not, not be here talking to you.
0: Yeah, totally. And getting that first message from Porsche that must have been a real moment of like whoa <laughs> yeah it, you know
2: it was kind of interesting because in the film tamir had asked me a question he goes what do you think porsche would think of the cars you built?" that was literally the question and i'd go well i hope 35 years later they'd be smiling or something like that because <laughs> in 1977 as a 10 year old my dad took me to an old court motor show i tell this story all the time but i came back from that car show with a poster the brochures i put the poster on the wall. And I wrote a letter to Porsche saying, hey, I want to design cars for you. And they, you know they wrote me a letter back saying, call us when you're older. And then for 35 years, I never thought about it. So he asked me that question in the film. Someone at Porsche had obviously seen the film. They wrote me a letter back, which I actually have on the wall. The second letter they wrote me, the first one was 35 years before. And they said, hey, we saw your film. We understand your passion for the brand. And we'd like to invite you to come and visit us. You know, And I'd never gone to Porsche, you know, the factory, the museum, you know, and it just opened this sort of semi-odd relationship where, you know, I'm not your typical Porsche-looking person. And, 12, you know, 10, 12 years ago, maybe it was a little bit more stereotypical of the typical Porsche owner was a certain category of person. Obviously, I didn't fit that category. But the timing of the film was good because within the next year, Porsche was celebrating its 50th anniversary of the 911. So everyone was talking about the 911. I suppose my story was a little bit interesting because I didn't look like the typical Porsche guy. I was an enthusiast building cars for myself. It's not a business. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm not an independent builder or tuner. No one, you know, I'm not working on anyone else's cars. So I think Porsche realized I had this one thing that you can't manufacture, put in a cup and sell, and that's passion. You either have it or you don't. It has nothing to do with, you know, money or or where you came from or anything like that. I was just very passionate about Porsche. So I embarked on this kind of weird journey where they started inviting me places, you know, Goodwood Revival (laughs) and Oldtimer GP in Nürburgring and started including me in various events and getting me behind the wheel of various cars. And then that opened the door to Another sort of level of car collector that I hadn't met before. People that own, you know, iconic cars like 911Rs and Carrera GTs. And, yeah. You know, all types of high-end uh, Porsches, of which I call OPP, other people's Porsches. So, uh, yeah, none of that would have happened if it wasn't for the film. Because, you know, I bought my first Porsche when I was 25 in 1992. Urban Outlaw came out 20 years later. So I'd been around a lot of Porsches and owned quite a few, but I'd never owned a new one. So, you know, it wasn't like I was familiar with people at Porsche and, you know, ordering cars and going into dealerships. They probably didn't know who I was or what I was, but they couldn't sort of avoid the impact that that film actually had because it did have a big, big, broad reach. And still to this day, people are, are discovering it for the first time and being inspired by it. So. Uh, the film has a long shelf life you know it's going to be coming up for its 10 year anniversary pretty soon and for me it was just a pivotal point a part of a certain aspect of my life
0: yeah totally and i i love that that video is a perfect example that film of something done well with the right people put together nicely it just lasts like you can watch those sorts of videos forever and people will watch them forever whereas there's a lot of content now that's made for sort of today and right now and that has its place yeah but some every now and then it's nice to do something that might you know sit there and be there be there for a long time when when you got a call the call through or an email i don't know how it works to do a ted talk did someone just send you an email and say like hey we want you to do a ted talk
2: yeah pretty much and i'm like what's a ted talk i literally <laughs> yeah, did not yeah. know what a ted talk was so they sent, I mean, the the email kind of went, hey, we've seen you film Urban Outlaw. We're inspired by your story. We think you'd be great to do a TED Talk. And I guess mine was pretty last minute because I only had like, you know, it was like two, three weeks later. So, you know, I tend to say yes more than I say no, but my initial response was, what's a TED Talk? And they sent me a couple of links. Here's one of Bill Gates doing one. <laughs> you know, various other people. So I, I said, sure. And they said, well, you should probably come down. I did mine at UCLA or on Royce hall in front of about, I don't know, maybe seven, 800 people on a Saturday. So they said, you should come down on a Friday and sort of rehearse. And I go, well, I don't really work off a script. I don't rehearse. I just ad lib it. I go with it. They go, well, that's, and I said, I've told my story a lot of times because in that two year period, I'd done a lot of interviews off the back of urban mm-hmm. outlaw. It just was this explosion of, People interviewing me, uh, you know, every European country had a car show that was a Top Gear wannabe. All these people would come to the States to film content, whether it was car launchers, auto shows. So I had a lot of journalists come through. I told my story quite a few times. So I was pretty comfortable telling my story, or at least I thought I was. But what I anticipated was my story always gets edited down. People, you know, select the good (laughs) bits and cut out the rambling. So TED Talk was a bit different. They said, well, you only have 18 minutes to do it. There's, you know, 20 other people. It's scheduled. We're doing three an hour. Come down, rehearse. And they also said, you know, do a slideshow. So I grabbed a bunch of images of, you know, me and Sheffield as a 10-year-old, all the way up to how I was at that period of time. And so I rambled on on stage for 45 minutes the day before, like two in the afternoon. And they said, hey, you're going to have to edit it down. You only have 18 minutes. We suggest you go home and write down your life story. So I drove back, got downtown around five-ish on a Friday. And remember, I'm doing the TED Talk you know, 12 hours later the next day. So I wrote down my story, born in Sheffield, blah, 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 hit all the key points and started to try and ramble through my story. And it was difficult for me because I started stammering around. It just didn't flow because I don't work off a script. So at one point I'm like, fuck it, I'm just going to wing it. But I knew if I didn't get to a certain point within 10 minutes of the Ted talk, I was going to run out of time. And in reality, I ended up going 19 minutes so let me go one minute over. And I was pretty nervous because, you know, I left school at 15 with two o levels. I didn't go down that career path of going to university. I described myself as street smart, not buck smart. So it wasn't like I'd done live presentations in front of live audiences. So for me, it was an unfamiliar environment, walking out on stage at UCLA, which is a pretty big deal, in front of a live audience. There's no retake. There's no stop. Let me say that again. I'm going to reword it in a different way. And I was a little nervous for the first 30 seconds. You know, you can tell in my voice, I'm a little nervous. And I crack up one little joke. Everyone sort of laughed. And then I settled into my rhythm and continued with my story. And that was it, you know. I mean, I sat through probably eight TED talks before because I think I was the last one in the morning. And yeah. For me, it was some of it was so technical, you know. I, I was kind of lost on the uh, on the technical aspect of what some people were talking about. And I think the relatability to mine is it's just kind of common sense for me. It was almost like, what's the teachable element of my story? And at the time, I didn't really realize it. But once I started getting a lot of emails from people that have seen the TED talk, saying they were just inspired to do what it was they loved and uh, there was a common thread where a lot of people were on this path this journey going down a familiar course that maybe the parents had done where you have to go to school to be a doctor or a lawyer and you know two years into the study they realized hey i hate this what i really want to do is be a surfer or build surfboards or distill bourbon in my backyard shed or whatever it was so a lot of the more inspirational emails were from people that said hey your talk inspired me to quit my job change my path go down, follow my passion, follow my gut. That was the name of my TED talk. So those were more meaningful than people that had sort of said, hey, your cars are cool. You know, it sort of meant in a weird way, my story had actually touched them on this little spark of inspiration. You know, if I can do it where I came from with really no education, but the, the sort of will to succeed and ultimately the key is I was able to find things that I was passionate about, clothing, design, fashion, led into music, architecture, and the cars along the way were just, part of that story but i'd found something relatively early that i was passionate about and i remember as a kid back in sheffield you know going to a career advisor and you know where do you want to be in five years ten years i'm like i have no idea and i still don't really know it wasn't like i had the you know i wrote down the goals or where i wanted to be at certain points of my life you know i had certain things i wanted to achieve but they weren't so much you know career goals you know I, i sort of go with the flow and if something seems interesting. I go down that path if it's interesting to me. So having that relatability through the Ted talk and it's been viewed over 8 million times more than urban outlaw. And then the the Ted talk audience invited me back to host a Ted talk in 2017, where I was introducing people who were doing the Ted talk, but I've had more people come up to me in strange airports around the world that didn't you do a Ted talk? It still (laughs) happens to this day. So, you know, it kind of went a long way. And at the time, you know, it was something that I really knew nothing about. But I just kind of winged it. So that's yeah. that's the story behind the TED Talk.
0: Yeah, it's so cool, those sorts of interactions with people. Like you say, rather than someone just being like, oh, that's a cool car or whatever, which you're like, yeah, great, cool, thanks. It's like, oh, you've got some connection on a, a much deeper level of, oh, you've helped me or that was interesting or you've inspired me to do this. I find those sorts of interactions, they're so much better, so much like. They're worth so much more than the other ones, aren't they, really?
2: Yeah, I mean, a little goes a long way. As a kid growing up in Sheffield, I was a, a cross-country runner. I enjoyed running. And I started at an early age, maybe almost too early, eight, nine years old, and I was competing locally and then you know, um, ended up being English schoolboy champion for, for one year, like 78, 70, no, actually 1980. But to this day, I have a certificate. That One of my heroes growing up as a kid was Sebastian Coe, who ironically ran for the same athletic club a few years earlier than myself, called the Hallamshire Harriers. And as you know, Seb Coe, you know, 84 Olympic champion, world record holder. But I had this certificate that he signed in 1978, and I didn't win the race. I fin- finished third place, and it just said, well done, Sebastian <laughs> Coe. Yeah. And I would like, posted Sebastian Cor on my wall, so to actually have met him at an early age, and he just did one inspirational thing, well done. And I still remember it to this day. And it just goes to show a little can go a long, long way. So for me, I, I always try to make time to give back and share stories and how my journey came about because I still remember Seb Co. 43 years ago signing a stiff gun. I always said it was well done. But I remember it to this day that it was sort of inspiring to me and it motivated me to continue doing something that I loved doing, which was running. And later on, I realized you know, that was probably part of my motivation at an early age. You know, I wasn't necessarily a team sport player. You know, I didn't play football, rugby, or anything like that. Cross-country running, athletics, it's sort of an individual sport. And in a way, I'm still that individual today where I don't really have a pack of people around me or a posse or a team. You know, it's me and my cell phone and deciding does it feel right or not. So I'd always sort of been that lone wolf, you know, the loneliness of the long-distance runner type of thing. And that's sort of been part of my journey. And that was the great thing about coming to America you know, I didn't have to cut my hair and get a real job and, you know, go down this sort of predetermined path. So coming to America and especially LA just represented freedom, having come from Sheffield, which was great. Don't get me wrong, but LA in 86, it was land of opportunity, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the rest of it. It was everything I'd seen as a kid growing up watching on TV from Rockford files to whatever show it was. And, You know, grew up listening to L.A. music, L.A. bands. I was into Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue. And it was just that scene was here. It was alive. It was exciting. It was energized. So, you know, it was just a great place for me to be as a teenager and early 20s, sort of stumbling through life on this journey and making it up as you go along, but not really having anyone tell me. Because, you know, I'd been on the dole in England, living with my mum and dad, never really had a proper job there never had my own apartment didn't even own a car didn't have a driver's license so you know LA was like hey you can do whatever you want to do here so uh, that was one of the greatest things for me really
0: yeah it's cool and then along the way as you said there's been a a collection that's it's been seems to be growing over time of Porsches and I imagine have you got other non you know other stuff as well now
2: yeah yeah I mean I always did you know The first car I bought ever was a 1977 Toyota Corolla. I paid $200 for that. I bought that in 1988 here in LA and took my drive. I drove it around illegally without a license for probably six months, which was not a big deal. And then took my license in, in 1988, 89 here in LA. So that was first car. Second car was a Saab 900 SBG Turbo. Third car was the first Porsche. It was a 1974 slant nose conversion that I bought at the Pomona swap meet for 7,500 bucks. And that represented ultimate freedom. And more importantly, like a sense of personal achievement and dream come true. Cause that was 15 years after I wrote the letter to Porsche, had the poster on the wall and, you know, growing up in Sheffield, Porsches were not a common sight. So you didn't really see a lot of them. I didn't know anyone that had owned one. I'd never been in one really. So that was the beginning of, you know, my Porsche collection almost 30 years ago, which is, Sort of evolved in stages, and priorities have shifted, but um you've got to start with one and now it's evolved to a few more and The goal is one of the, everything Porsche's ever made in a sports car, so front engine mid engine rear engine air and water cooled you know a lot of people when they think Porsche, they just think nine eleven of course yeah. it is the icon, and then you break it down to you know you're either air cooled or water cooled you know and that's a whole big debate right there, but for me, you know you need air and water to survive so I like them all. And to me, it's all about variety. No two ever drive the same. And like I say, people like to collect, I've found, whether it's, like I say, stamps, watches, cars, guitars, whatever it may be, right? Shoes, sneakers, people like to collect things. So I'm no different in that sense. But I've been uh, fortunate enough to be in the position where, one, I have the space, which is a big thing, right? Yeah, that's huge. You know, a lot of people I know have cars that are dotted all over, you know. I got one here, I got one there, I got a couple there, whatever it may be. You know, you only really need one, but if you have the space and means to have more than one, you can expand. And for me, my timing was always good. And and by that, I mean, I bought things that I personally liked before they became trendy, popular and thus valuable. So, you know, I bought things that, you know, are now worth 10 times more than what I bought them. And that was how I was able to Mm -hmm. acquire quite a lot of cars because I actually wasn't spending a lot of money on them. I always did say up until a certain point, it's changed now, but... Porsches were affordable, you know, unlike Ferraris and Lamborghinis. You know, Porsches got driven. They had high miles on them. And for the most part, they were affordable. And certain ones are still affordable. You know, you can get behind the wheel of a Porsche, you know, in the sense of a box, though, which is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year for about five grand here in L.A. You know, and that represents the best bang for the buck into Porsche ownership if you're not hung up on it having to be a 911. So, you know, that's yeah. kind of my goal is experience variety no two drive the same and there's a Porsche for every price point you know it's from less than five grand but five grand gets your entry level into something that's somewhat reliable ish whether it's a 924 or box store or 914 and then the sky's the limit you know you just go to wherever your comfort zone is financially and there's a Porsche at that price point
0: Yeah, it's a great thing about the Porsche brand. Like, if you want to be in it, you can start at the very cheap, and you can ultimately just keep going. They just keep getting more expensive, if 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 that's where you want to go.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can have a lot of fun in a five grand Porsche, you know, or a three grand Porsche, whatever it may be. But you know, a Boxster is because I get asked this question all the time: What is the best entry level Porsche? And I always go, if you don't care about a 911, you're on a budget, get a Boxster. You know, it's performance-orientated. It's reliable, the fun to drive. And, you know, like I say, Porsche for every price point. But I'm not purely Porsche. In the past, I'd owned uh, European sports cars. You know, I don't have a Porsche tattoo, but I have a Super <laughs> B tattoo there. But one time, I owned two 69 Super Bs. I had a 65 Mustang GT350R Shelby replica, a 67E type Jag, a 73 Lotus Europa. I even had a 79 Ferrari 308 GTB. And over time, I sort of let those go because, you know, I I realized each one of those was good at one thing, but the Porsche sort of excelled at pretty much everything. You know, it's like the Lotus was super nimble, but it was cramped. The Super B was great in a straight line, but didn't go around corners, didn't stop good. So little by little, probably 20 years ago, I got rid of everything that was non-Porsche. But ironically, over the past two years, I've kind of dipped my toe back into non-Porsches. You know, I currently have two E-type Jags and the, I bought the underdog unloved two plus two automatics. So the okay, first I had yeah. was a 67 series one. And then recently I got into a, a 69 series two, two plus two automatic straight six. And then I found this really awesome series three V12 auto two plus two, but it's got this really great patinaed leather looking blue paint. And the goal with these two cars is to convert them to five speed manual keep all the patina but redo all the suspension underpinnings and sort of make a a sort of rat rod hot rod e type jag so back in the british card game i have a 75 amc hornet it's a piece of americana and uh, you know a few other things sometimes come through yeah i recently had bought a 79 lotus esprit s2 because i've always loved lotus you know there's something very very compelling and uh Interesting about them, so yeah, they've I'm got
0: a cool, cool ethos, don't they? How has your um your sort of personal preference for a car changed over time? Because I, I know you've got a, a large variety and you get to drive lots of different stuff now. Do you, has what you liked in a car twenty years ago changed drastically to what you like in a car now? Because I, I know, okay, I'm a younger, but mine has changed in the last five years, for example.
2: Yeah, I mean, it has, you know. A, I'm 53 now. So comfort is a bit more important to what it was 20 years ago. Uh, You know, I think I can sum this story pretty good. I recently bought a 991 Turbo S 2014 (laughs) and I wasn't actually looking for one. I'd never really wanted a 991 because they're like an, in a way they're like an appliance. It's a very fast grocery getter. And I, I generally build stuff for myself. That's pretty raw. You know, Raw cars are loud, they're noisy, they're uncomfortable. They they do all these things that are really fun, but you don't necessarily want to spend 12 hours a day in them. And The 991 Turbo S wasn't something I was looking for. I was actually looking for, like the newest car up to that point I had was a 996. and I had a few of them. I got an Aero Kit Mm. 1, I got a GT2, I got a GT3. So I was trying to go in chronological order. I thought 997 Turbo, yeah, I kind of want one. Never thought about 991. That was always going to be OPP, other people's Porsches. So I have a car broker friend, Paula Auto Kennel, who always gets great stuff. And I tell him, hey, thinking about a 997 Turbo, keep your eyes peeled. He goes, you know what? I've got something you're going to love. It's got, a, It's coming in. It's a 991 Turbo. I go, oh, I'm not really <laughs> interested in 991. He goes, you're going to love it, though. I go, how do you mean? He goes, it's got 162,000 miles on it. Oof. One owner, LA car bought brand new at Riverside Porsche in LA in 2014. The guy paid $193,000 for it. And he commuted from Newport Beach to LA every day on the freeway. So he clocked up a lot of miles in seven years. At 120,000 miles two years ago, he replaced the transmission, which cost him over 20 grand. And the car had 55 pages of receipts. So what it did was it brought the cost down like 30 cents on the dollar. Because most people that have a 991 Turbo S, they don't really put a ton of miles on it. You know, like Mm. I started looking, the average one was six figures and the average was 25 to 40,000 miles max. So this one I acquired was literally pennies on the dollar. I'm the second owner of it. And when I first got it, I was like, I don't really like it. It was like there was no drama attached to it. You could floor it and it's four wheel drive and it would just. Squat down, the rear would push, the front wheels would pull. There'd be no, none of this would yeah. be happening when you put your foot down. And you'd look down and you were doing triple digits. I thought, well, it's fast, but it doesn't feel fast. You're so disconnected from everything that I'd done before that was raw and loud. And, you know, you'd get a little swirly yeah. when you put the power down. The turbo was like, I wasn't in love with it. I didn't get out of it and look over my shoulder at it. And I thought, I don't really know why I did it. And then, about two weeks after, Harry and I took a trip to Mohab, Utah to this thing called Easter Jeep Safari. It's an off-road event. And we drove the Turbo S. And on the way back, we came through um, Arizona, Flagstaff, and we made a day trip of it. And we drove 800 miles in one day. And we were in and out of the car for 13 hours, you know, stopping and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And when we got back to LA, we were not beat up. Our ears weren't ringing. Our back wasn't aching. Our butt hadn't gone numb. And I finally realized, this is what that car excels at. You can do 800 miles in a day, probably do 1,000 miles in a day. If I was doing that in this 964 next to me or 277, it would have been uncomfortable. So the long answer to your question is it's horses for courses. If I want to take a spirited blast up my favorite road, Angeles Crest Highway, that's 18 miles from here, I'll take anything. You know, It doesn't matter whether it's air-cooled or what. You know, It's fun. It's exhilarating. It covers all the sensors. It's everything that we love about an air-cooled car that's raw, it's faster than it seems. It's, you know, really exciting. Adrenaline runs. It's an adventure. The Turbo S is not that. But if you want to do a thousand miles or a five hundred mile road trip in it, that's where that car excels. Very fast paced GT cruiser. And it's got all the creature comforts that I never cared about. People would say, does your car have air conditioning? I'd go, yeah, the window's wind down. Does it have a radar? I'd go, no, it's got a loud engine behind me. You know, stuff like that. So the Turbo S is the car that you'd want to drive across country in. And ironically, I just drove the new 992 GT3. And, of course, I keep comparing it to, like, you know, the Turbo S or even the new 992 Turbo S. And The GT3 is not a car I would want to drive 1,000 miles in a day. Yeah. But a two-hour blast-up your favorite road, it ticks all those boxes you know, like the 992 Turbo S got 200 horsepower more than the GT3, and it's a Swiss army knife. of It does everything as opposed to something that is so niche-focused that it's almost impractical. So yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. It's a long ramble on, yeah, it does. on how my priorities have shifted. I mean, the, uh, on Sunday, I was driving 277, my favorite car in the L.A. River. Tomorrow, I'm going to drive a Ferrari F90 press car. Uh, So there's always sort of interesting things coming through. So I don't think my priorities, they've evolved, I think. I think they've evolved. You know, to me, I still like saying, hey, we can't go back in time. We can't time travel. But if I want to go back to 1965, 66, I've got that Porsche that I can get in. And it's antiquated, the big steering wheel that's wood rim that feels like this. It smells of oil and gasoline and everything's sort of antiquated about it. And I like that. So to me it's it's the variety and it boils down to two things. You know, people always ask me about electric cars and autonomous self-driving cars, and what do I think about those? And I go, you know, those are great for commuting. You know, if you live in downtown LA where I do, and let's say you want to commute or you had to commute to Santa Monica, it's 18 miles away, that can be an hour, hour and a half drive. Yeah. That's really no fun in a hot rod early 911. You might as well have an autonomous driving car. Because that's commuting, right? And yeah. I, you know, I'm fortunate enough where I walk to work. So for me, ninety percent of my driving is pure pleasure. I'm not the guy putting one hundred sixty-two thousand miles on a car in six years, driving backwards and forwards to work. But I'm putting the spirited blast up the crest on the car. So for me, I break it down to driving's a pleasurable thing for me for the most part, as opposed to a frustrating, starting, stuck in traffic commuting thing. So you know, you sort of have okay an electric plug-in hybrid or whatever it may be that's quiet and might even drive you to work. Yeah, it's not engaging, but yet stuck in traffic is not engaging. So, you know, horses for courses.
0: Over the last couple of years, I I owned a bunch of cars that were all pretty hardcore, driver-focused, kind of loud experiences and realized all the cars pretty much were the same. They all fit – not they weren't the same exactly, but, like, they filled that niche of – something you would take for 30-minute blast at the weekend or whatever. That's, you know, your one hour, two hours. And then I realised that I had absolutely nothing that was good or fun for a long, just like yeah. go for a long period of time. And so over the last two years, I've slowly been trying to sort of push stuff in different directions. And one of the ones, um, I have a 78SC that's been messed with. Um, it kind of looks like an ST uprated engine brakes suspension stiffened all that sort of stuff um but with a couple of creature comforts like aircon and a stereo and stuff like that but i find and you might be a perfect person to answer this question i now i think i want to use that car to become something that's probably more old school so and an, a more of a sort of Maybe like a 65. I had a go in one of the two-liter uh, oh, yeah, yeah. race cars, like a 65 yeah, it race car. That to be car. a
2: lot of fun. yeah,
0: uh, Absolutely wicked. And yeah. my car is quite grippy, like really quite grippy. So on the road, it's kind of – you've got to be pushing it uh, probably too hard to get it to move around too much. It's just – you've got to be going too fast, really, uh, or it doesn't have quite enough power for the level of grip it's got. Um, and I'm thinking of selling it and then buying something else that's older, maybe messed with a little bit, but less grippy. Have you got any thoughts on a sort of... I- I'm I'm thinking of like a 65 or 66. i got
2: a lot of thoughts on that stuff because... I've built and still own a lot of short wheelbase cars. At one yeah. time I had five 67 S's and Maradona two. I had everything from a 64. I had one mm. of every short wheelbase car. I currently have a 65 911. It's a 310th car I ever built. I have my favorite Irish green 66 911. I have two R inspired short wheelbase 67 uh, S's. One of them's a real hot rod. So the one that's a real hot rod has a 2.5 twin-plug motor built on a 67S two-liter case that my buddy Matthias at Wicked Sixers in Hamburg built. And it's just everything on it is custom. GT3 spec crank, custom pistons and cylinders, yeah. custom cam grind. He dynoed that two-liter uh, 2.5 motor running on pump gas, dynoed at 271 horsepower. Ooh. 271 out That's of 25. This is a lot. You know, when you think... The iconic 73 RS, you know, 2.7, I had 210 horsepower. So if you can get 100 horsepower per liter out of a naturally aspirated motor, you're doing pretty good. So that's going in my narrow-bodied short-wheelbase 67S, which admittedly is slightly stretched. It has long-wheelbase rear fenders on it, so I can run a 7-inch wheel all around. But it's still a short-wheelbase car. So it's running a 15 by 7 all around with a a 225-45 Hoosier on it. It's got straight cut, custom short gears. You know, it's stiffened, it's lowered, everything's adjustable. 22, 28 millimeter torsion bars. It is super duper nimble and fun. It goes to like zero to 100 really quick. Probably tops out at 120. And there's nothing more alive than that car because the power to weight ratio: 271 horsepower in a car that weighs 2,000 pounds ish with no arrow. No big grip. You know, a seven inch wheel is not really that wide by today's standards. Yeah. You know, that really gets swirly in a straight line. You know, and that's kind of on the way extreme end of hot rod short wheel based car. You know, I've built quite a few R inspired cars with two liters, two threes, two fours, two fives, and there's nothing more fun than those cars. I mean, in stock form on how they came with a four and a half inch wheel or a five and a half inch wheel with a 165 70 profile tire. Those things don't really handle great, but you lower them, stiffen them up. You know, I've got these 22, 28 millimeter torsion bar set up, Bilstein sports suspension, everything fully adjustable elephant racing sway bars, you know, control, uh, setup and stuff, semi-solid motor mounts, transmission mounts. And then the key for me is a really aggressive compound, like an R compound tire. And then like a aggressive street pad brake compound. So, you know, stopping uh, distance is really short. And yeah. Obviously, cornering speed is up there, but those cars are super duper nimble and a lot of fun. I, you know, I've seen those two liter cars at Tuttle and those guys set up. You know, yeah. you know, they're just like completely sideways through a rouge, going up the hill, <laughs> flat foot, soaring away at the wheel. You know, those cars are, are a blast to drive. You know, and they are pretty nimble. Well, they're very nimble. You know, and on a certain road. You can keep up with a lot of high horsepower cars that really you shouldn't be keeping up with. Because I always say the road determines the top speed, right? So let's yeah. say you're on a road and those turns are—I don't know—call it a 70 or 100 mile an hour road. The GT3 is not really going much faster than you're going. You know, you're probably eight, nine tenths foot planted to the floor. The GT3 is probably 60, 70 percent, but Corning Speed is—you know—he's not really going that much faster than you. Maybe he's 10 miles an hour faster, and then he pulls you in the straights. So, but, you know, it becomes this sort of fun cat and mouse. And I'm a big fan of short based cars. You know, I've always loved them. And uh, that's kind of how I started building these R-inspired cars, which then obviously led to an ST-inspired car, to an STR. One of my favorite cars is I have a 78, the white one with the black hood and red bumper. You know, And so I like that style of car that's still raw, Great throttle response, super lightweight, so they are nimble. They accelerate quick. You know, they rev high. You know, you build these short stroke two five style motors. You know, they rev over eight thousand RPM. So they feel like, hey, this is the evolution backwards of the GT three, right? Yeah. This is all that DNA that went from the sixty seven S to the sixty seven R to the the TR, which became the ST, which became the RSR, and then everything sort of went from there. So, um, I built a lot of those cars and I like a lot of those cars, but that's not the car I'm going to drive, you know, on that 800 mile trip to, to yeah. Moab because at a certain time, you know, like you've got these custom short gears and on the freeway, you're always sort of not always, but often if you've got a short gear and you know, you keep a standard fifth, then you're okay. But if you've moved everything down a step, airport gears, you know, fifth gear sort of feels like you are in third or fourth and you want to go one more. and that's it. You're done. Yeah. You know, and I'm a big fan of the 901 transmission as well. So uh, I find, for me now, I'm building a car for a specific sort of uh, goal, and I find a lot of people tend to overbuild these type of cars. Mm. They go down the shopping list of everything that seems great and whammy, and then they overbuild the car for the street. Or, you know, they've got the wrong camp in where there's no bottom end and it's all top end, right? Makes all the power above 4,500 RPM, which is extremely hard to live above 4,500 RPM on a regular street in regular driving conditions. It's different on an open track, you know, where the surface is smooth. So, you know, I see a lot of people that possibly overbuild the cars, enjoy the journey. And then when they're done, the car's actually not much quicker than it was before because you sort of made it, too much of a track car there's a there's a happy medium between the streetable track car right and then the all-out yeah. track car that's just no fun on the street you know one where you know you've got a cam profile set where, where you go from throttle transition you know idle you're in bumper to bumper traffic and it's nothing
0: nothing <laughs> nothing Then <laughs> yeah. all of
2: a sudden it zings you know that's kind of what i'm talking about you need something that's easier to modulate if you're going to drive it on the street in traffic
0: Yeah, and you don't want to be going round a corner in like second or something. You don't want to drop down to first on that 901 gearbox if you can help it. It's like, that's not a great, great one. And then just dropping out of the power and you're like, well, okay, now I've got to wait and I'm halfway down the straight before it comes back in again.
2: Yeah, and then it just wallops. I mean, that's kind of the fun challenge and problem and restriction with early 3-liter turbos. Another thing that I'm fond of, 3-liter early 75 Mm. through 77 turbos. You know, that was the holy grail poster car as a kid, right? But you drive them in real-world situations, you know, it's not a super revvy car. You know, the gears are very tall. Like, first gears like 45 miles an hour. Second gear second is 90 miles an hour. Turbo lag is not great. So those early 3-liter turbos, and by today's modern standards, they don't make a lot of power. They're not necessarily nimble. You know, they're not necessarily like stoplight to stoplight fast. They're not necessarily great in the canyons, but they're great on – sort of, you know, longer stretches of road where you can really open up and have a lot of room in front of you for when that turbo boost kicks on. Because a lot of times, like in those cars, like let's say I'm in my 78SC, right? You come up to a left or right-hand turn doing 20 miles an hour-ish in second gear. You're staying in second gear. Maybe clutch in, blip the throttle, yeah. go around the corner. In the turbo, you got to go, oh, i got to go down to first gear here. Because if I'm going around the corner in a three-liter turbo in 20 miles an hour and I put my foot down, there's absolutely nothing. The yeah. Prius is going to walk away from it. <laughs> you know, so you have to adjust your driving style. You know, it's like you're on the freeway and you're cruising at, let's say, 60, and you're in fourth gear, and you accelerate. There's nothing. See, so you, you almost got to go down a second gear, which is really counterintuitive because you'd never yeah. be doing that in your SC, right? You yeah. might drop to third and just, you know, blip the throttle and go. But turbo, you got to go, I, I really need to be in second gear here, and I'm doing 60, right? because I'm just cruising in four. You know, so it's like, you always have to adjust your way of driving style based on what you're driving. And I think the, you know, the three liter turbo for me is a great uh, mind adjuster of, I got to go to first gear to go around this corner at 15, 20 miles an hour. I'm not doing that in anything else, but you do it in the turbo.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I had a, and this will sound ridiculous. um, I had an experience exactly like this. Uh, two weeks ago, so I have I have an F forty. Oh wow! The, wow. the first That's one of time, my holy
2: grail cars, actually. <laughs>
0: um, I, I took it on track the other day for the first time in Anglesey in Wales, and
2: that seems to pop- be a fun track with an ocean view.
0: It's a sick track from like a filming view, everything like cool place, and they're super chilled there. Like they really, they're less strict than other parts of the world, and. um,
2: do they have noise restrictions there on decibels? Uh,
0: not really. Okay. Like, it depends on the day, but pretty much okay. not. So my car's straight pipes, competition oh, pipes, wow, wow. and um, is suitably loud. But the, it's got a really tight section in the sort of the back of it. And in it, I got to this point where I'm comfortable pushing cars on track, like the Porsches and stuff and race cars and whatever, I'll push. That car, I don't want to push it too much because... You know, if something goes wrong, it's quite an expensive repair bill. Um, but I was taking a lot of these corners in second, which was seemed like a, a r- about the right gear, but you were just massively dropping out of the boost, like disgustingly so, so that you didn't really come back in until you're just at the edge of the corner, like coming out the last bit of the corner, and then you get a bit of a fizz as the tyres spool up and off you go. But it was that thing of like, well... I think this corner is possible to do in second, like and keep it on it. But you've got to be so much more committed on the way in than I am comfortable being. And you're like, ah, uh, it. and it just, it just found it was really weird. Like, there's just certain parts of that track that just did not work. They just didn't work. If you're in first, you're going too slow. Second, yeah. you're dropping out of it. And unless there's some crate, unless people are like, I don't know, clutch kicking or something to yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. get the boost up. You just drop out, and then you'd be like, Well, that's it. I'm I'm just going to, it's a waiting game now, and then fireworks down as you go down the road. It was a really interesting, it was the first time I've had, had that in a car where it's just. That's kind of one of those situations where, gap. you know,
2: left foot braking, you know, keep the boost up, you know, your right foot's planner, but you're trying yeah. to get a bit of speed with the left foot, but you don't want to drop those revs out of the boost range. So I find that's where left foot braking comes. You know, there's a lot of advantages to left foot braking, but. In a turbo, that's possibly one of the the big ones as well, is that left foot brake and keep that boost spooled. But yeah, F40 is one of my dream cars, one of my top 10 all-time drives. I'm going to tell you this real brief story real quick. was back in 2016, I got the opportunity to drive a modified F40 in Miami. Mm. and My buddy Larry Chan's with me. He's shooting an article for Speed Hunters. We were down there for Racer Champions. So I guess it was like January 2017 is probably when it was. He called me the night before and said, hey, do you, you know anyone with a cool car we can drive? And <laughs> I don't know if you've been to Miami, but Miami's like one of my favorite places because the car culture there is phenomenal. Yeah. But it's all kind of under the radar because there's a lot of sort of South American, you know, money down there and people that may have a second home in Miami but be from somewhere else, but they've got exotic car collections there. And, but they're not necessarily on Instagram, so you might not know about them. Anyway, I make a call to one of my buddies who sort of knows everyone down there. And before you know it, I've got the keys to an F40 and <laughs> we're doing this shoot for speed hunters over Key Biscayne, this bridge that sort of drops into Key Biscayne from Miami early Sunday morning. Of course we've done some rips over it because as you know, I mean you own one, but for me I come from a Ferrari 308 GTB. I had a 79 carburetor in one. And weirdly I described the F40 as like a 308 GTB on steroids in the sense of there's not a ton of shit, right? It's pretty stripped out. It's yeah. just what you need. It's raw. And for me, I felt comfortable in it straight away. You know, unlike, let's say, a Carrera GT, which there's always a big intimidation factor to it. For me, the F40 seemed pretty comfortable. It was just like a way faster, more exciting version of the 308 GT. So we'd done these blasts over. And it was like, of course, the one infamous, let's go for one last run. We ended up getting pulled over by a cop. Of course, the car didn't have plates on it. We had no paperwork on it, no insurance on it. I'm on a California driver's license. My buddy Larry sat next to me taking photos. The cop was not amused. He had us on the side of the road for a solid 30 minutes. We finally managed to get a hold of the owner who was like half a mile down the road. He came over and smoothed the whole thing out, talked to the cop. The guy was like a car dealer. So it was, you know, he had no paperwork in the car, but he sort of had, you know, proof to Ownership on him. Anyway, long story short, we ended up getting out of a speeding ticket. The car was never impounded, and that's my F forty story. So, how long (laughs) have you had the F forty? About five years. How did you stumble into that? Was that like, I I guess, a bucket list
0: car? Right. It was. It was a bucket list car. Um, and my car is is a bit different. It is. Um, you might have seen actually. There was a white Liberty Walk F forty about well, more than five years ago, um, running around. that was in Japan, had an LM body kit on it, um, had some different suspension, had a big subwoofer in it. Um, basically, I bought that car um, okay. for a, a reasonably good price and um, re-sprayed it, took it back to a company called Zanassi in Italy, um, put it back to sort of original, um, but painted it blue. So it's okay. it's the blue awesome. one, or it, right. and it's got the plate F40 blue. Um, and I've had... A wicked bunch of years driving it um and i think at the moment i'm sort of coming to the end of my time with it i've enjoyed it i've driven it on track and i'm just ready to move on to other things or i think the the value side of it has got to a point where i'm not that comfortable i want i like to use my cars and that stops me using that car so i'm like okay i need to move into other things that i'm happy ragging around Um, priorities have
2: shifted a little bit but yeah exactly and
0: and just over time what you're looking for in a driving experience or you realize you think you might use something you buy something because you're like oh this is i'm gonna have the best time driving this and you realize if there's two cars in the garage i always take my 997 g3 rs or something like that like it just it doesn't get used that much even though it's still the poster car epic Yeah, yeah amazing experience
2: I have that car. I have a a right-hand drive 75, 930 turbo. So that's the first year of the turbo. I have a left-hand drive one as well, which is pretty unusual because they're pretty rare cars. Porsche only made 284 of them. Only 32 were right-hand drive. I bought this car in Australia, shipped it to LA, 2014-ish. I just never felt comfortable in it, probably because it's a right-hand drive car in LA. Mm. It's the only right-hand drive car I've ever owned. You know, I never owned a car in England. So first right-hand drive car happens to be an Uber <laughs> rare Porsche. Half the time I'm walking to the wrong door to get into it because I'm always used to going on the left. <laughs> and everything about it is counterintuitive. You know, it's not that you're not shifting with the right hand, you're shifting with the left. It's The seatbelt comes the other way over, <laughs> the ignition's on the other side. I'm not looking over this shoulder for the rear view mirror. I have to look over that one. So nothing in it is second nature. You know, it's this muscle memory yeah. stuff. If I'm so used to rearview view mirrors this way, shift this way, seatbelt that way, key here, everything's reversed on it. You know, so it just starts out awkward. I walk to the wrong door to get <laughs> in. I go, oh, this is annoying. You know, but it's like a pretty rare car. But I, I've got like four others that are more comfortable of the same era. So it's always one of those things that sometimes you chase something and then when you get it,
1: stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
2: not that the f40 was that because i could i think live with an f40 i mean where do you go from an f40 i mean is it a ferrari lateral move i mean what are your Um, sort of bucket list cars
0: there's there's another buck well no i think generally and this sort of fits into my wider look at all of the cars is the more i race or drive on track the more i realize that i probably have i I have more fun it's different thing me driving on the road now is like road trips and experience with friends going to visit people uh like all that sort of stuff it's not driving 10 tents i don't drive 10 tents on the road but I can drive 10 tenths on a track. So I think I would rather shift towards cars that I can do more stuff with on track, probably less valuable, but like those sorts of experiences have cars that are great on the road for what, you know, have one that's great for a blast for an hour and a half, one that's more of a GT car than a comfy family car and then a race car or whatever. But I'm just shifting away it's 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 generally the value of that i think i'm just going down my path there's other things that are interesting i i really fancy a roof at some point i don't know when or where or if um i love Especially the idea the yellow of a, bird thing. yeah what an unbelievable thing um i i love the idea of a, a career gt but i don't know whether i would ever do that because the similar getting into the similar sort of values again I just want to try GT
2: seems like five, six years ago, they were the supercar bargain Yeah. when their prices were, you know, maybe it's a little longer than five, six years ago when you could sort of pick them up here in the States, you know, 300 grand, which is still a lot of money. But, you know, now they're like a million dollar car. But I remember them being a $300,000 car. And at one point I was like, wow, I got these three liter turbos that are worth, you know, quite a lot of money, 10 times what I paid for them. I started doing the math as to how I could get into a Carrera GT for not a lot of money. I go, well, if I just sold three of those three liter <laughs> turbos, I'd have Carrera GT money. And I go, I wouldn't be in it for Carrera GT money. I'd be in it for these three turbos that I bought yeah. when they were worth nothing, right? So that's kind of how my mind thinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not buying high-end cars, but you can sort of somehow get your way into them on a certain level. And Carrera GT for me was... You know, I'd driven one. It was one of these experiences where someone said, Do you want to drive a Carrera GT, a friend of mine? It was at a car event. Sure, of course you're going to say that. Before you know it, there's like 20 people stood around watching, <laughs> and it was kind of parked sort of awkwardly where I had to reverse out of a spot, and I'm like, oh, don't stall it, don't stall it. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Because all you ever hear is people storing Carr- Carrera GTs, and it's not a good look. And so I just remembered all the articles I'd read about it of, you know, just let the clutch out. Don't yeah. touch the throttle, you'll be fine. So, once I'd backed out of this slightly awkward place without stalling it, after that, it was just one of the most intoxicating drives ever. But you run out of open road, really. You know, if you want to sort of you experience did. everything that that does, you don't really get out of second gear, right? You know, you obviously you can go through the gears, but yeah, you know, you can only do a certain speed on an open road. And most roads, you know, are not open in the sense yeah. of there's traffic everywhere. So it's back to the road determines the speed for me. And, you know, recently uh, my girlfriend and I got ourselves into a 1975 Rolls Royce Silver Shadow via, nice. uh, I bought, you know, I'm dating this girl, Hannah Elliott. She, she's a writer, journalist, writes for Bloomberg Business Week. So I've, we've been dating for almost four years now. So she's been my gateway into all this exotic stuff that I yeah. didn't experience before, you know, test drives, press drives in everything, right? Lambos and just yeah. high end exotic stuff. So you know, other than her being like super compatible and fun and sexy, it's been great to experience our passion together in other people's cars. But for her birthday, I bought her an SL, like an 88 560 SL, and it turned out to have a few more gremlins than we'd anticipated. And. You know, it, it there wasn't. It wasn't quite high enough for us. We're both pretty tall, and of course, we always have a roof on. and It just wasn't working out. So, the independent specialist that I'd bought this car from, I called him up and said, "Hey, you know, this thing's not quite working out. It's a bit of a lemon. Can we trade it in for a similar SL, similar year, similar price point?" The guy goes, "Sure, no problem. Bring it back." So we bring it back down, and Hannah's looking at all these other SLs in bronze and gold and brown and all these cool color combos. I look in the corner, I see this olive green long-wheel-based 1975 Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow. I'm no longer interested in cars (laughs) for her. I'm looking at the Silver Shadow. I go, how much is that? And it was pretty close to the price point of these SLs. And here in the States, in LA, it's like SL Capital. You know, they're all over. I dropped my answer, but... They're, they're all over and you can pick them up in that, you know, you can pick them up from five to 20 grand gets you sort of a decent one. And the Rolls Royce was in the same price point. So we ended up trading the SL nice. and 2000 bucks into a 75 Rolls Royce long wheelbase silver shadow, which is now our daily driver. And the interesting point to my ramble is we would tell people what we were doing, they'd go do not do that. There's nothing more <laughs> expensive than a cheap Rolls Royce. And of course, we paid him no attention. we were like, ah, fuck that. We're going to do it. How bad can it be? Yeah. And I got to tell you the story. We took it for a test drive, and the dealership was in uh, South Central LA, sort of not the best place. And we ended up getting on the 110 freeway south, and we're quite a way south. And we pull into a gas station to swap over so Hannah can drive it. And the car literally died in the gas station. It had run out of gas. We have to call them up hey, the gas gauge doesn't work. The car won't start. I think it's out of gas, but we couldn't push it to the gas pump because the thing weighs like 6,000 pounds. go, They <laughs> Okay, we'll send the guy down with a gas can. So there was a sign right there that, hey, the car broke down on a test drive, but we still bought it. And now it's become our daily because the car determines the speed. Like this is 65 going straight in the Rolls Royce. It, <laughs> it'll go faster, but it won't go much faster. But there's just something about the car's forces to slow down. Willow eyed dog yeah. loves it. The, it just smells of Connolly leather. For me, it's it's nostalgia. And you can pull up anywhere, you know, any hotel or restaurant. And I hate people valley parking. So I'm the guy that'll park around the corner in a loading zone before I have someone valley park the car. But yeah. the Rolls Royce, I don't mind it. And they'll leave it out front. You know, no one looks at you like you're a douchebag in a vintage Rolls Royce. No, you're cool. Everyone's giving you the thumbs up. Everyone wants to know about it. It's not like we were driving in a new ball of Phantom where you might sort of get judged on that, at least in LA. Here, it's just cool. And I find the E-Type Jag's the same thing, even though it's the automatic two plus two, ugly duckling, no performance. There's something very cool about it. So it comes back to the experience of, places and faces and memorable moments you were just talking about it you want to have your fast car on track and then you want to do these journeys and rallies and explore places right with other people and cars and that's what i call faces and places type of thing so it's back to this thing about being all about variety you know i mean sometimes you want to go fast sometimes you don't right
0: exactly and it's i think when i got my um sc the first time i sort of that car and it's um it's signal yellow and it's just like a fun little like most people you drive through london or whatever and the amount of people that just come up and go like oh that's a cool car there's no like everybody is happy around that car whether you're in it driving it passenger or just next to it at the fuel pump like it just exudes like happy vibes whereas if you were in a modern Ferrari or whatever, you know, your Phantom or something, you don't get that. You're not engaging with other people other than they might go, oh, that's a blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. And, and I, I love that about it. And I also love, you know, the older cars and stuff like that where this value, like, isn't so obvious. It, yeah. it could be niche and expensive, but no one, no one knows. They're just like, it's an old car. And you're like, yeah, it's just an old car.
2: That, that's the thing with the Rolls Royce. I mean, you can literally pick them up in the teens, right? You know, yeah. so they're affordable. You know, you can't really get too much in the teens that's, you know, got character and soul. And I'm all about character and soul, and for a, that's kind of what new cars lack. You know, they've become appliances, yes, they're very effective at what they do, but they're also kind of somewhat generic where certain things look just like other things, right? Yeah. But nothing looks like an E type Jag or seventy five rolls or a uh, you know, an air-cooled Porsche from the 70s. I mean, you know, these are things that you don't necessarily see every day on the road either, and people are drawn to them from this aesthetically pleasing look or the sound of it. You know, there's nothing cooler than or more enjoyable than an air-cooled sound. But one of my new pet peeves is, you know, it happens a lot here in L.A., usually with Mercedes-AMG owners that have got these really loud, aggressive, barking exhausts, and they're doing 25 miles an hour. You know, it's yeah. my pet peeve, you know. <laughs> Sound, you know, people associate sound with speed. I get it. We've all grown up that way. You know, this nostalgia of V12 screaming, right? Or F1 car screaming at 20,000 RPM. And then you go get in a Porsche Taycan that's electric and it's a whole different noise, right? Gear whine, tire whine, suspension, creak, flex, you know, whatever it is, road noise, you know, tramlining on the freeway. So to me, I don't necessarily associate speed as much with noise. Because the guy in the AMG that's doing 25 and deliberately backfiring and yeah. barking and setting off alarms, he's just like, dude, come on, right? Yeah. Be a bit no stealth, need. be a bit chill here. So maybe that's me getting old. Maybe that's me getting old because, you know, I've got cars with straight pipes and headers and, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the drone becomes one of those things where, you know, you just sort of don't want to be in a certain RPM range.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I'm definitely moving moving that direction, I yeah. am more conscious of other people. And yeah. if it's a long journey or just any, I just don't want that, like that drone down the motorway before we sort of start to wrap this up. There's one thing that's happened recently that I thought is super cool. And I'd love to know a little bit about you've got a Nike sneaker. Oh, oh. coming out. This when is like does peak. this,
2: <laughs> when does this
0: air? Uh, This will be like a couple of weeks.
2: Do you have a date when this airs yet?
0: We can work with whatever you're about to tell me. I'll put it after that date. Oh, hello. Hello. Nice. Magnus is wearing a pair for the people that are not watching the video.
2: I wasn't quite expecting this, but it's something that (laughs) is going to tie back into, remember my Sebastian Coe story from a long time ago? Or about an hour ago. Sebastian Coe obviously was, ran for Nike. And uh, we talked about Urban Outlaw and the catalyst mm. of what Urban Outlaw brought about. So here's the Nike part of the story. There's no time constraint here. You know, we can go as long as we like now. Uh, I'm no longer worried about an hour because cool. we're already over it. So when Urban Outlaw came out in 2012, I talked about the Top Gear trailer that came out that first day and went viral. And within that first week, I actually got a, email from sandy bodecker who was the vice who was the president of nike action sports that's all everything that everything nike does is cool but the action sports division sb this is x game yeah. skate it's the fun stuff they've got a thing called the kitchen and blah 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 so sandy bodecker nike action sports was a porsche gt2 owner had seen the urban outlaw film and said hey i'm inspired by your story i'd love to see if we can come down and tour your facility and he goes, We're hosting a two-day design summit seminar for our designers and merchandisers and marketers. We do this several times every year. Generally we we go to a remote retreat and it's a corporate retreat over two days and we talk about what we're planning for the future and down the road and what Nike's doing. He goes, Would you be interested in hosting us at your space in downtown LA? And would you give us a tour? And I'm like, Wow, fuck. You know, this thing's like next level. I go, Nike's interested. I go i'm just like doing you know drill door
0: handles
2: (laughs) and nike's like thinks i'm inspiring in some way and you go you go back to nike the waffle shoe phil knight you know nike started in the garage of phil knight's house doing waffle sneakers in the late 60s early 70s right so i go maybe there's a mild connection there of thinking outside the box so of course yes nike you can come down I'll give you the dog and pony two cent tour. You can host your two day seminar here at the loft. And he said, do you think it's possible we could screen the film? I said, well, the film's not done. And the seminar was in August and the film had this release of September. I go, let me talk to Tamir, the director. So called Tamir up. Hey, you're not going to believe it. Nike's interested in the film. Uh, they want to know, can they screen a, a, a you know, the film, he goes. Well, it's not done. It's rough. It's not fully edited. It's not colorized. We don't have the sound right. But sure, yes. So Nike flies him down from Toronto. He's part of it. We ended up screening Urban Outlaw, rough cut, thirty-two minute documentary, at the Soho House in Hollywood. Kind of a big deal thing to Nike, and we go fuck. Like Nike's on. <laughs> Nike's on this. Something's happening here. Yeah. And then you know Nike invited us up. Gave us you know some some stuff. But I never went to visit him. And then unfortunately, Sandy Bodecker passed away from cancer in 2018. And we went up there for the funeral. And I, I met this guy called Pelly who worked at Nike SB and he's a Porsche guy. And uh, he flew us up there and it was just kind of cool to visit the campus, even though it was under sort of tra- sad, tragic circumstances. We toured the facility and they had a Sebastian Coe exhibit there. I go, wow, this is like full circle of 2018 when I went to Nike, Seb code sign my certificate 1978, do the math how many years later that was. And it was just sort of this full circle moment, pretty special. And he said, would you be interested in doing a sneaker with us, with uh, one of our pro skaters? I go, well, you know, I don't skate. He goes, it's okay. We kind of like your attitude. And Ashods, a fan of yours. He's a Porsche guy. so." We ended up collaborating. Like, these things take time. It's a conversation. You know, you don't hear anything from six months. Six months become nine months. Are we still doing it? Yes, we're still doing it. We have to push it back. We're scheduling it, you know, for such and such a date. And uh, so the shoe's going. I, I meet Ashard, uh last March, but we haven't done anything on the shoe yet, but we're doing a shoot. And ironically, on Sunday, I don't know if you've seen my – Recent little Instagram post, but I had my favorite car 277, not the slant nose Hot Wheels one, but the real one, down mm. in the LA River. And I was filming the promo for the video. So this is dated March 25th. This was Boy. my first sketch for the Nike sneaker. This is dated April 2nd. This was my second sketch for the Nike nice. sneaker. And I'm not one of those guys that's good on Photoshop or Illustrator. All my yeah. cars that I've done up to this point, I see them in my mind and it goes to the car. There's no CAD illustration, no livery that's printed out, nothing's wrapped, you know. I don't contact an art guy who mocks it up for me. It's it's done this way. Yeah. So that was the initial sketch. And then I'll show you the shoe. So Initial sketch. There's the insole for the shoe. Oh, nice. Nice. Here is the very first sample of the shoe. Oh, sick. The very, very first one that came to me. Oh, the inside and, you know, is it takes, so cool. takes time to get samples. So mm. here's the one I'm wearing.
0: Nice. And then Looks I, like will it's-
2: walk, I will walk you through the shoe. Oh, yeah. So the inside of it. Is tartan. I don't know if you can see yeah, that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a blue, so, bluey green tartan. Right
2: side has blue tartan. This side oh, okay. has red nice. tartan. And then the shoe is designed to distress. So <laughs> let me just grab one more thing. I've got to move this laptop because, believe it or not, the computer is on the Nike SB box.
0: <laughs>
2: nice. I've got it resting on. Let me move everything around. The Nike oh. SB box. And then what comes out of the Nike SB box is this. So, this is actually the shoe.
1: Ooh.
2: These ones I'm showing you here, I've been wearing and are already made yeah. up. So, the shoe is designed like the car to distress. Did- so, initially, 277 was gold. So, 277 is gold. There's still gold paint in yeah. the front of the car. It's been painted green it's been painted several shades of white so the goal with the shoe was the shoe would take on the character of the car and distress so the shoe has been made to distress this one has obviously been quite well distressed but even the shoelaces have the urban outlaw logo right oh, here cool. so and have you
1: been
0: distressing that like actively distressing it or have you just been wearing it
2: a combination of both because I knew I was making the video. So the video is a combination of everything that I just walked you through yeah. of me talking about the story. Then we bring in a shot where, who's their pro skater. So there's footage of him skating, there's footage of us collaborating, oh, talking about so the cool. shoe. The shoe comes with red, white, and blue laces that you can see here. Yeah. And then we go drive. And I get a shot, you know, driving 277. So this is all literally happening right now as we speak. Yeah. You know, I shot the video on Sunday. The shoe comes out. When this says the shoe's already yeah. out. The shoe comes out on the 19th. So we've got to make sure that everything we're talking about here doesn't yeah, yeah, get yeah. leaked. Because up to this point, not many people know about this. So this no, happened organically. Cool. You know, when I look at stuff like, got my label yeah. here.
0: Got oh, my name so, there with so Nike. Cool.
2: It's got my, uh, you know, this is sort of a bit of a big deal for me. So, is all it? the elements that I'd done on the sketch, you know, obviously they scaled back. They just said mm. put whatever you want on it. And then, you know, they sort of scaled back from there. Yeah. There's the Union Jack on the back. You look at the base sole. There's yeah. the base sole. Oh. You look at the insole. It didn't drastically change. Oh. and this like everything i've been talking about just happened organically
0: that is so cool It's like peak so you know <laughs> what's that? Peak, peak collaboration like nike shoe doesn't get yeah, much better i mean
2: you know i've done stuff with hot wheels i've been designing hot wheels that is also five super years cool. you started out with one porsche 356 now it's over you know 30 cars i've done a little bit of stuff with various other people but this is kind of for me a bit of a next level thing, yeah. You know, the shoe had been under wraps, i had been working on it for almost three years. Obviously, it doesn't happen every day, and then just last week it sort of got leaked to Hype Beast Sneakers, and people still don't know much about it because it's really been under the radar. But yeah, there's the story of the uh Nike SB 277 Ashud,
0: which will be shoe. out when this airs. Um, It'll be out. How and many, possibly,
2: you know, knowing these sneaker drops no longer available because they're going to be hard to get. I think.
0: How many are they going? Have they said how many they're going to make?
2: Ten thousand of them,
0: which that's is that's you know
2: low. That well for Nike, that's low. You know, usually they're doing boatloads of stuff and it goes to yeah. Lock, so that's how many will be out there, and uh, they're actually Do you super get companies. like a,
0: a a lifetime supply. <laughs> because especially if they distress time
2: will tell (laughs) i've already got quite a few pairs you know for me i'm used to wearing things that are black so actually having a shoe on there that's you know even though it's beat up is is red white and blue but it's great because it's the first time in a long time they've actually done an sb dunk that's canvas and leather okay yeah really came out super cool and this is one of the things that i'm super proud about
0: so i'm I'm loving that tartan on the inside Yeah, um... the
2: tartan on the inside. You know, I just wanted to sort of bring in a little bit of the punk rock element, the DIY. Like, this is the Mm. exact tartan that I have on some of my cars. Ironically, that Hot Rod uh, 67S actually has the exact same tartan on the inside. So it was just cool to bring in those design elements based around the car and end up with something like this would never have occurred to me. You know, it's not like i got a pr team i spoke earlier on in <laughs> the iphone getting stuff done and i think in a way it becomes approachable and relatable you know it's not like i said okay i need a nike collab let's get in touch with nike and see if we can work this thing out these things happen organically you know and uh, most of the time it's just a matter of seeing it through being super patient not rushing stuff and waiting for stuff to happen so that's that's going to be one of the highlights of 2021 I also have a third edition of my book coming out that we're working okay. on. And then I'm doing a pretty cool coloring book, which will be out when this comes out. It's, oh, nice. Uh, photos of my cars that have sort of been rendered black and white so you can color them in. It's the Magnus Walker coloring book. So those are a couple That's of cool things fun. I'm working on. That's yeah. a bit different. I got a question for you. You were talking about the F40. Mm. You got yep. the SC Hot Rod. What else do you have? Uh,
0: I've got a 997 GT3 RS.
2: Okay. Gen two. Well that's
0: everyone's fave. Um I've had that eight years now. Okay. Something like that. Um and I've got a radical race car, S R three. Okay. Um and that's it. Oh no, and I've got a little I've got a little electric car, a Peugeot E two oh eight, which is oh. our sort of city car, town okay. drive around, less polluting. Um, and then I <laughs> gone a bit mad and bought a eight twelve super fast as a oh. GT V twelve, can drive a lot. The view with that is to put a lot of like put a decent amount of miles on it. It's got lots of luggage space. Use it. Enjoy that sort of engine before they disappear.
2: I always say as long as we can still get oil and gasoline. We're still going to be able, hopefully, to drive internal combustion cars. Yeah. You know, I always use the example of Jay Leno. The world, for me, the greatest car guy I've ever met. I think out there, and he still has the ability to have a functioning steam car. Yeah, 1902 and I've, I've been in the car with him. He owns like I don't know six or seven of these 1902 white Stanley steam cars. And the point to my rambling is, you know, he's found a way to. Make some completely antiquated prehistoric technology of a steam car street legal in L.A. So as long as we can still get oil and gasoline, you know, hopefully there'll still be people tinkering around with internal combustion motor cars. But we are on this pinnacle, right? You know, the automobile has been around for the better part of 125 years and all of a sudden overnight, call it the next five to 10 years. You know, in certain places, you know, internal combustion cars won't exist or Hmm. won't be allowed on the street, right, to a certain degree. I don't think this is going to happen overnight globally, but in certain cities, especially European cities, it'll probably be implemented way quicker than it will be in, you know, Mexico, for example, possibly something like that. So I think it is a valid point of, you know, you hear about Lamborghinis bringing out a hybrid by the end of the decade. They're going to be all electric Porsche. We know where they're going. You know, one of my mild gripes with the new 992 GT3 is I believe they've maxed out the performance potential of that four-liter motor. Or they've realized this thing is not going to have too much more shelf life. We're no longer going to develop it any further due to emissions, constraints, or whatever it may be that we don't know that's happening in the scene. But to me, that car lacks mid-range bottom-end torque. It doesn't have a lot of it. And yes, it's great when you're in the twisties on the res, but... You know, I was caught out on the freeway where I'm, you know, cruising at like, I don't know, 70 in sixth gear. It's a of yeah. car, floor it, drops to third seamlessly, makes all this noise, needle revs around. But I'm not, I'm not pushed back like this. And I look down, it's super loud and clattering. Everything's happening. And I look at the speed. I'm not actually going ridiculously fast. And I guess the point to my ramble is, it seems that that's performance on that particular car has been maxed out. Why? You know, possibly because, okay, we're not this. This is going to be phased out in the next, you know, the 993. What is that going to be? We don't know. But, you know, it might not be what it is today.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think they're they're holding they know that they're not going to have too much time maybe to develop that engine and they know they've got like one or two more cars to come out. And so they're yeah. like, well, okay, the next GT3 RS will have 10, 10 horsepower mount more or whatever. And it will just sort of keep going up the chain. It's interesting your, your point about the torque, because that's the only, it's a little problem, minor gripe I have with my RS, GT3 RS, is the low down torque. And on a track or anything like that, not a problem, not a problem at all. Yeah. On a twisty alpine road, you're in that situation where you're, Over the top of first gear, too, you're too fast for first gear, but second, you're sort of not having that torque. And I got to drive. I want to hear your thoughts on this and also another car. I got to drive the four litre. So the 997 four litre and that just had a chunk more low down torque. And that felt that was so, that was so much better. I, I, someone I had on the podcast recently, who I know I believe is a friend of yours, Alex Ross um, from Sharkworks.
2: The blue Sharkworks orange wheel car—that is, you want to so talk that about car. talk? That's the, That's the car. That's the car, Porsche. I'm not going to say should have built because there's reasons why <laughs> they didn't build it and why Sharky did and why he was able to get that talk out of that performance package. And I know it took him quite some time to figure. out that out where it wasn't pulling itself apart but when he solved that problem and i drove that blue car back in i don't know 2015 2016 yeah that was like this is it this this is the car right here because it has that torquey bottom end which i think the new car lacks and you know you look at the new gt3 it's the exact same performance cut out of the power plant that's in the 2019 speedster and i thought the 2019 speedster lacked bottom end mid-range torque so the performance from that motor has not evolved from the 991 speedster and remember the 991 speedster concept they debuted on the 70th anniversary june 8th 2018 mm. and it came out as a 2019 model when the 992 was already out so it's like you know yeah. they're bringing that out in the next generation it's like kind of odd why are they bringing a speedster 991 out when we're already into 992 so the fact that the new 992 GT3 has the same engine output exactly 502 horsepower and I think 346 foot-pound of torque as the last generation Speedster, the performance has the performance from the power plant hasn't evolved. But let's go around the Nurburgring 17 seconds quicker is all due to ground effects and double wishbone suspension, five-link rear multi-end rear Tyres, steering, right? Blah blah. Yeah, all that stuff, which is great. But how many people are on the Nürburgring? You know, it's, it's, that stuff is not helping you in everyday world on the freeway when you've got a bit of open road stretch and you're not necessarily in the max RPM rev range and you're in that low power band but you don't have max torque because that comes a little further up at 6,000 or wherever it comes
0: up. With the 992 as well, it's, it's a heavier car. It's not a lot yeah. heavier. They've done a lot to lightweight, lightweight, which is another thing I think we should talk about a little bit. Um, the car's well, got the, a bit the heavier. Yeah, George is
2: like twenty-two pounds lighter or something, right? And you know, yeah, this is lighter yeah. and that's lighter.
0: They've removed the windows; they're now plastic, all that sort of stuff. Um, but because of that, it's a bit heavier. So there's a bit more inertia before it gets going. So that, right? Like, if it was five hundred kilos lighter, obviously you would that power plant would be not a problem. It would seem really yeah. talky. But because the cars are slowly getting heavier, it doesn't – it takes a bit more for it to get going.
2: Yeah, I mean, they have a wider track, which is wider rubber, as you know, which is more resistance at lower speed inertia, right? So they're kind of spinning around a little bit. You know, they'll talk about the exhaust. is 22 pounds lighter, which it is, and we've got light saving here. (laughs) But, you know, everything else is sort of a little bit heavier, right? And it's still using the same PDK seven-speed transmission from before, but the 992 is now an eight-speed PDK transmission. And, you know, uh, yeah, we go around the Nürburgring 17 seconds quicker in PDK, and you go, well, what's the manual time? But they don't record the manual time, right? You know, we just want to be right under six minutes, 59.57, whatever it is. Lars Kern, two thumbs up, did really good. That's an awesome performance thing. But for me, an everyday driving thing, it's – the gt3 has always been a look at me car and i've got one i've got a 996 gen 2 mm. i want a 996 gen 1 you can't get them in the states i like the beginning of everything and i do like yeah. the evolution all the way through but one of my pet peeves really and maybe it's just an la thing but you go to your cars and coffee and these literally like you know 12 guys in gt3 rs in paint <laughs> yeah. a sample look at me colors and you go well you don't really stand out because you all pick the same sort of shade of paint to me sample, right? You know, what really stands out is a white one that's not paint to me sample yeah. at me color combo. And you go, well, how many miles do you have on your GT three? Oh, you know, I got a buddy with a speedster with two thousand miles in it. Why don't you drive it? I don't want to devalue it. I don't want to put miles on <laughs> it. Well, doesn't that kind of defeat the
0: object? And that's also the flip like if you've got a car, I, I don't understand this attitude of if you can get in the UK, if you can get one of these cars you're You're basically sitting on a guaranteed profit. Now, you could look at it that way and go, I could sell it and take the money. Fine. You can do that. But if you're going to own the car, that to me, a, an appreciating car or a car that's appreciated is the one you should drive. You should yeah. drive it, the living shit out of it, because when you've done with it, you've still made some money. So, so why, why are you driving other stuff that might depreciate? It's an interesting Yeah, no, it's one. a
2: slippery slope. I think this problem for Porsche and it comes back to remember me talking about you used to see a lot of high mileage Porsches as yeah. opposed to low mileage Ferraris and Lamborghinis. It's kind of shifted around a little bit. And it all started for me back with the 28 with a uh, 918 program, right? Where, you know, there was certain special things where if you had a 918, you were going to be first on the list for that. Yeah. And if you, they were becoming a little bit like Ferrari. It almost seems like the 918 came out too early. You know, it didn't necessarily get glowing reviews to begin with when the battery was in the passenger seat, going back to like, you know, 2011, 10 years ago. And, you know, it was on the cover of a lot of magazines. And when it finally debuted at the Frankfurt auto show in 2013, I was there, you know, mm. I was like, this thing's already been out two years. It's It's not so much new in a way. And not to take anything away from the 918, because it's great, but the new GT3 is only two seconds slower around the ring, right? You know, so technology's come a long, long way, but my rambling point here is going to ramp up to 2015 and GT3 RS. You know, Porsche made yeah. a lot of those, like 7,800 of them, you know, and it was on the cover of everything and it became the car to have. And people were buying them and flipping them for whatever it was over sticker and, Dealers were not giving customer allocations unless you were paying over sticker. People just weren't driving them. I have a guy uh, in LA, his business is car storage. And he told me last time I spoke to him, he had something like, it might have been three or four GT3 RSs from that era, and not one of them had more than 1,000 miles on them. So it was like all of a sudden, Porsches are not high-mileage-driven cars because to a certain degree, I think the owners that are coming in it's first time Porsche owners are new to the mark and they're coming from elsewhere. We might own a Lamborghini, a McLaren, yeah. a Ferrari. They're buying their first Porsche. So these guys are used to a car at this level. They're not buying the entry level box though, right? We've got to be on a similar level to whatever it is we're driving, call it a McLaren, Ferrari, Lambo, right? So we got to get the GT3 RS It's king of the hill, top of the yeah. line, right? We got to get that car. and We're going to pay over sticker and, the price is going to be whatever it is, you know, two, three, 400 grand at that time. But they're not driving them. Well, they're not driving them no. that much, you know, which is back to my 2014 Turbo S with 164,000 miles on it now. That was a car that was built to be driven. So you kind of go, why are people not driving GT3s? Is it because everything we're talking about, they don't want to put miles on them to devalue them, partially here in LA for sure, or back to, I don't want to do the 2,000 mile road trip in the GT3. Is I think it's not-
1: coming
0: back to that more and more so it's a combination of those two i think yeah and specifically i think i haven't driven the new one um but sort of picking up what different people have said and all that sort of stuff and the new revised suspension and the way they've had to make it lighter so they've removed some sound deadening and all that sort of stuff the thing i loved about the gt3 as opposed to the rs is it was always the one that had this still had the phenomenal engine But you could drive – it was a lot more usable day-to-day because it had the sound deadening, didn't have the plastic windows, all that sort of stuff. But with this generation, they've removed that.
2: Yeah, it's almost in stock form, I think, too racy for the street. Yeah. Now, obviously, we know Porsche is going to roll out the Touring because we've seen the success of what the GT3 Touring is, has, and, you know – today the gt3 touring in the states is the gt3 that really is you know you've got to pay a lot over to get one you know the gt3 rs has sort of come down you know it's dropped quite a lot from where it was the gt3 is now you're paying the premium to get the gt3 touring so it makes you think we know the gt3 touring is going to come out we know they're going to do a gt3 rs you know how much racer is a gt3 rs going to be it almost seems the the stock gt3 is is notched up uh, possibly a a step too far in between towards the GT3 RS. And of course, you know, the swan neck rear wing uprights are polarizing. The front lower bumper diffuser splitter is polarizing because it is kind of aggressive looking. Before that was all one color, right? Yeah, You know, now it's matte black on everything you see is the shark blue. So it just really stands out. You know, it's almost, I think, almost too extreme. It's like, how are they going to tone that down for the GT3 touring, so it's yeah. it's interesting. I know people that have got every GT3 up to this point. I go, well, do you have an allocation for a GT3 992? No, I'm going to wait. I- I'm hearing I'm going to wait. So we'll see. Obviously, the, the fanboys are going to be all over it, but it'll be interesting to see what the speculators do. Because you know, if they're still in the game, you know, I'm not a fan of people buying cars and flipping them. But hey, you can do whatever you want, right? You own it. Do yeah. whatever you want. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting time, I think. It is, but maybe that step has evolved too much towards the RSR on the GT3 for all the reasons that we just spoke. about. Yeah,
0: it's it's the first one in a while that I I've gone. Hmm, I don't think I would buy that, and and that links into to with all of the other things that you know have changed. Like, I want to use my cars on the road. If it's a race car, it's a race car. Okay, get the RS if you want to use it as a hardcore track car, but the GT3. And if I kind of hope they do, but I'll be annoyed if, if the touring, which is the one I would sort of lean towards for road use anyway, if they make that the softer, a little bit heavier, more sound insulation, all that sort of stuff, perfect. But it, it would annoy me because it then makes that car even more unattainable. The one that right. you're like, that's the one I want is basically impossible to get hold of at that point.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, and then it raises the question, oh, you know, they talk about building these cars for the enthusiast, but you just hit the nail on the head. The enthusiast might not be able to get it. That was the problem with the 911R, right? Yeah. It's built as the enthusiast car, but the enthusiast probably can't get it because the speculators, because they had a 918 and whatever came before, or the guy that had a Lamborghini and now he's you know got the money and the means to get that, they just become more unobtainable Unrelatable for the average achievable goal, I think. Which then also raises the question: How many flavors of nine eleven do you need? Right? Mm. You know, there's you know the turbo, non-turbo version of everything we know. Then you can get the nine eleven R, the nine eleven T. You can get the GTS. They're all sort of same but different, slightly different variations of it. So uh, maybe it's good that there's a variety for everyone, or maybe sometimes less is more.
0: Yeah, I think less would be more. Like Carrera S, then you want a, an amazing engine in a road car, and then you want a hardcore track car. Three models, yeah. and then maybe a turbo for a turbocharged experience. I know we've got that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's, I it's mean, an interesting. Recently,
2: one. recently I drove the 992 Turbo S. Right, so mm. I've got the last generation. The new one's got like 750 horsepower, and then I got the Carr- 992 Carrera C2S. So yeah. two-wheel drive. One step above base model. And this is where it gets really interesting. The spec on the 992C2S is almost identical to my 2002 996GT2. So 20 years ago, 996GT2, <laughs> this was king of the hill. Yeah. By today's standards, one step above base model, 992, is almost the same spec as the king of the hill. This is yeah. how far they've come. And that's probably enough car, really, for the street. Even though the 750 horsepower Turbo S is, you know, the new king of the hill, that's, it's just kind of like interesting to me that one step up above base today is the equivalent of GT2. It's mad. Years ago.
0: It's mad. Yeah. And the performance of that car, like that, that's quicker than my GT3 RS, probably by quite a margin. Yeah.
2: So then it becomes, you know, how engaged you want to be you know, back to the new GT3. you got to put the work in there to get it out, which, you know, for the most part is really enjoyable, but yet here we're sort of, you know, critiquing it a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. Right, well, I normally wrap these up with five questions.
2: All right, I guess we're approaching the end.
0: Yeah, we're getting there. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey?
2: Most memorable? Is this one of the five questions?
0: Hmm. It's
2: a tough answer. Probably, I mean, I have three, but I'm going to try and nail it down a one but I won't. I mean <laughs> I did Millia Millia in twenty nineteen in a Mercedes uh goal with Mercedes Sick. support. That might be the one because you know it's a bucket list thing. You get there. It's Hannah and I decided I was fortunate. I got to drive. Hannah did the difficult job which was the navigation. I don't know if you've done the million million but I've not done we, it but you know checking. the road books in Italian. You know, we go to the driver's meeting. We see all these people with you know they've got the book and They've got, you know, yellow highlighter markers and little <laughs> tabs on certain things. And we're like, these people are taking this really seriously. And we decided before day one that we were going to have fun. We weren't going to sweat the details. We were going to run our own race. You know, I always say with a million million, if you want to see Italy and experience a Dolce Vita, don't do the million million <laughs> because you don't see any of that. You know, you're in the car a minimum of 12, 14 hours a day minimum. Like you know, you got to get to the event. Starts at seven or eight, whatever time your start time is. But you're not done until ten at night at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of you're either rushing from one place to the other. You got lost. You followed someone else, even though you know you shouldn't. He made a wrong turn, or you get there early and you hurry up and waiting and trying to play the stopwatch games. So you cross over the line within the time period you're supposed to be there. So it's this kind of stressful thing, you know. Even if you're not competing, it's like It's not a closed road. You're in Italy. Everyone drives like a maniac. There's, you know, around about every hundred yards and buses and tractors and, you know, thousands of people there. The greatest thing about Emilio Melia really is the people or are the people. When you pull into these remote villages, like day one's a blast, day two's a blast, day three's a slog. It's like, why are we doing this? It's nuts. It's raining. <laughs> I, it rained the whole time when we were there. But you pull into these villages at like nine o'clock at night, you're blurry-eyed, you've been in the car, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're wet, you've, exhaust. you know, too many exhaust fumes and the energy and the emotion. And then you sort of, you know, you're like, seat time you drained a bit but you get into the village and everyone's cheering and honking you go this is the greatest thing about the million million the people so there's yeah. one
0: really no, absolutely it sounds like an amazing thing and the, everything i hear about it and i've done one kind of crazy road trip in italy that sort of had a bit like italy in nice cars on that something like that is unlike anywhere else in the world. Like the rules are just different. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a quiet experience.
2: You get in the zone with this red mist, and to begin with, you know, we all, I guess, are spirited drivers up to a certain point. And you see one guy cut into the other lane into oncoming traffic, and there's a cop in front of him, and the cop doesn't stop him doing it. And then you go, oh, that's how it's going to be. Okay, <laughs> we'll do that as well. So then you dive bomb down, of course, you pass a bunch of cars, and then No doubt you get to like the roundabout of which, you know, it's a thousand roundabouts is what I call it. You got to break late, try and get in. Of course, they're not going to want to let you in. They would sooner you have a head on collision rather than let you in. (laughs) So you just end up in that pace, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, Oh, it's great. When we did it, we were teamed up with, um, bernard mayer you know the f1 pace car guy yeah and he was driving with uh, the beastie boy dude so those were our teammates it was like wow That's this cool. is awesome you know <laughs> we're driving slightly manic in someone else's multi-million dollar car and at the end of the day you just turn the car over and they say is everything okay i go yeah the brakes are still soft you know it, it doesn't stop great the library actually you got to get used to people go to me what's it like driving a mercedes going i go Kind of like an E-Type Jag that doesn't stop as good. Four-speed box, kind of torquey, long gears, but the E-Type Jag stops better. At the end of the day, when you're exhausted, you just give it to the mechanic. He fills it up. Next day, you keep going. So day three was like, wow, this is a slog. Day four, you're like, hey, we did it. This is the world's greatest thing. So that's how I sum up the million.
0: It sounds, it sounds pretty wicked. Next question. Yeah. This is going to be right? tricky. Five-car garage, unlimited value.
2: Whoa, this one's good. Um, <laughs> Saab 900 SBG Turbo, just because I want one. Uh, Car number 277. F40 Ferrari. Mercedes Goldwing, just because it's iconic. Mm -hmm. And then probably the 75 Rolls-Royce that we already have. I think that's a five-car garage right
0: great, That's a great five. And that was picked out quite quickly. I'm impressed.
2: I don't overthink it, it. If you ask me tomorrow, it may be a different five. But those are the five that are sort of in my mind right now.
0: And that's the great thing about these, no, those sorts of questions, these sorts of questions, is like, it changes. Five minutes later, you'll be like, oh, it's different. If yeah, you there's no only drive, right and
2: wrong answer here.
0: Yeah, exactly. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life and you're allowed a $500 thing on the side, you can tell me what that is if you want. But yeah, you're only allowed one car plus a $500 banger on the side.
2: See, that's, that's actually a good question because everything that we've talked about is mildly compromised mm. in some form or another. One of the things I really like is my, you know, 20-year-old Chevy van that's parked outside. (laughs) Kind of practically, it's kind of under the radar. It's comfortable. uh, But I'm not going to say a 2000 Chevy van. I mean, I honestly don't know. One car for the rest of your life.
0: You have one car and then you've got $500 for something else.
2: All right. One car for the rest of my life. Probably my 1976 930 Turbo just because that was the one that started the love affair with everything. Mm. And then the 500 bucks, you can't buy much for 500 bucks, but I did buy a 77 Toyota Corolla for 200 bucks. So I don't know if that answers your question, but 76 yeah. 930 turbo.
0: Interesting. Interesting. What do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment?
2: Well, that's a great question. I'm doing this show for Haggerty called The Next Big Thing, which is sort of that uh, question in the way. It's a very you know, good show the- for
0: those people who out there
2: i'm currently working on season two i'm super excited about it i shot five episodes in and around new york last week i'm shooting this sunday the next five here in la so there's certain things that are on the list uh the current undervalued car i mean there's a lot of them i mean i would say dodge viper for me it's a car i actually want i think here in the states there are undervalued i don't know what that is in the uk but um Dodge Viper represents a lot of bang for the buck, I believe. Uh, let me think what else I'm shooting. At. I'm just going to say Dodge Viper, I'll leave it at that. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not going to overthink it. it, is my opinion no, yeah. today at this time. So.
0: Dodge Viper is quite a good one, and this one that doesn't really translate over here because you can't really get them, whereas in yeah. like, the States, they're everywhere yeah. and you get loads of performance, design, everything for not that much.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can pick them up here for like 40, 50 grand
0: Final question. Most interesting car to you at the moment? Were you looking up, were you Googling, researching?
2: Okay. I'm back in Ferrari mode. This one's for the Tafosi, the Prancing Pony fans. Uh, Season one of Next Big Thing, I was super excited to drive a Ferrari 308 GTB four Dino. And after I drove it, I was still excited. I'm kind of maybe possibly even more excited today than I was then. But I realized at the price point where they're at, and these used to be cars that you could buy here in the States for 10 grand. I'm talking 20 years ago, but nobody wanted them. But now they're at this price point where when it comes to Ferrari, call it the, in the US right now, the 50 to 70 grand price point, you can get the 308 GT4 Dino, which is tractor-like and antiquated, nimble-ish, but not really fast. Same price point, you can get a 355, so that's the last Mm. of that, call it, poor man's baby Testarossa, you know, wedgie design. Or you can get the first year of the Ferrari 360. So, you know, I'm kind of thinking one of those three just for pure driving pleasure. But all three of them are different, right? But they're all sort of in the same price point. You know, there's a 70s era, and then there's the last of the wedgie 348, 355, And then the 360 really is the beginning of everything which comes up to one of my favorite Ferraris that i've driven recently is the 488 um or the f8 tribuno which i think you know is a really cool car and that dna really can sort of take it back to the 360 and before that the 246
0: dino so
2: that's kind of what i'm looking at i mean
0: it's a really interesting period that i think at the moment looking you said, okay, if you sell at forty what would you buy and and I think the reality is I would like to try out loads of different things, like not have it all in one allocate all the money to one thing and one of the cars that I look at and I go those are damn cool is a manual three five five yeah I like I just look at them sure. and go they sound amazing, they look cool, they're very of right. their time and they're r- relatively reasonably like affordable now as well. Um, yeah,
2: that that car is not dated at all. I mean, Ferrari's interesting. You know, there's a guy here, you probably know him Ferrari collector David Lee. Mm. You know, he's got the Ferrari 5, you know, the 288 GTO, F40, F50, Enzo, La Ferrari, and then everything in between. And, you know, a 288 GTO is a car that I kind of like. Yeah. You know, cool. I always wanted, when I owned the 308 GTB, you know, it was a 20 grand car. And at the time, I kind of wanted a 512 Boxer admittedly this is like 25 years ago at least but back then a 512 boxer was about a 50 grand car and 50 grand to me was all the money in the world back then because yeah. the 308 was 20 grand so you know it was two three times the price of that but it was kind of like that evolution of the 512 Boxer bb berlinetta was like the 308 gtp on steroids which was kind of weirdly how i described the f40 even though it's not you know it better than anyone but weirdly it kind of was yeah me, so there still is a charm about Ferrari, you know. There's something about it, right?
0: There is something about it. I I love I love the cars and then I kind of don't like the brand, which is weird. Like
2: I I, I don't I I can't really explain it. (laughs) I can. It's a Ferrari ball cap, it's a Ferrari t-shirt, Ferrari glasses, Ferrari driving gloves, a Pilates Ferrari shoes. And then the little badge here that goes, you know, Ferrari Owners Club, I'm Bob Smith. That's how I sum that (laughs) up.
0: Exactly, exactly. And that is not me. Like, I'm just not that person. I I, I get it. I get it. I don't think I'll ever own a red Ferrari just because.
2: (laughs) Well, that's the tricky thing with, you know, I'm looking for this Ferrari, or I was a 308 GTB4, and I don't want a red one, right? Yeah. You know, and it's like any other color's got a premium over red now. So I thought, maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way around. Let me just buy a red one. I, I'm going to paint it, right? I'll paint yeah, any shade totally. of color I want. You know, I want the two-tone Berlinetta body thing. So, you know, silver, you know, with a sort of oxblood le- red leather interior with a black bottom Berlinetta trim would be the way to go. go. Why am I worried about if it's red? You know, just spray over that thing. So, uh, uh that's why your car's cool because it's not red or, or like you know that irish green what is it f40 that's out there or the yeah
0: irish green test Eugenio's yeah, car. car yeah he, I, funny story about that one um one day so we've been in touch a little bit every now and then just like hey and um he said oh your you painting yours inspired me to paint mine and i was like oh no way I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want anyone else to start painting cars, but I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. And so that, so well, he did his. That I think on. is
2: a good new trend because one of the things I do love, well, there are a lot of things I love about Porsche, but you know, I love the fact that they're easy to customize. At least the first, you know, everything from 1964 up yeah. to like a 996 is separate of the 996. Is pretty much interchangeable. This 994, uh, 964 is a perfect example of it. So people love to modify Porsches and they were always modified from back in the, you know, the James Dean days all the way through. But most people never really modified Ferraris or Lamborghinis to that extreme, right? You know, they wouldn't even paint them, you know. So I think the fact that you're inspiring people to go paint an F40, which is the holy grail Ferrari for a lot of people, right? You know, it's kind of a cool thing. So
0: yeah, I think we'll see a lot of more of that sort of thing as time goes on with people, Going back, maybe get a three five five. Like I would quite like to see like a resto mod, not like fully done, but like three five five or that sort of era, or maybe a three sixty. Yeah. Just like played with a bit, bit different, right. tuned up here, just adjusted. That'd be cool.
2: I mean, one of the cars I want to do on the list following on from the E-type Jag is yeah. I want to do a X I've always liked the XJS. It's probably yeah. like Simon Temple of the same, you know, it's, that's probably where it's coming from. And uh that's one of the cars that I want to hot rod, like an early series one. Yeah, you know, yeah. do like a TWR Tom Wilkinson Shaw racing street version of a wide-bodied no bumper XJS is is something that's on my list. And ironically, I was talking to Ian Callum about it a few years ago when he was still at Jag. And he goes, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a really pretty cool idea. Cause he did that hot hot rod two door XJ six, right? And then they also built one for um Nico McBain, the drummer of Iron Maiden. So, you know, What's they're it kind game? of into hot rod and things. Yeah, yeah. Around. One of the coolest drives I ever did actually was a drive to celebrate the 50, uh, 50th anniversary of the XJ series with Jag Classic. And it went from the Jag Classic Center to the Paris Auto Show, The Long Way Around. And we drove all eight generations of that uh, Jag and all, all the way up to the current one, which at the time was, I guess, 2020. But it was a really cool drive. So that's back to like, you know, enjoying the moments and places and people and sharing yeah. stories and the evolution of things from the beginning to the end and, you know, which one's your favorite. And I still was going back to the, you know, Tudor XJ6 Coupe from the 70s was the one I would probably take. Yeah. You know, and I like Jags, you know, I like old things. So I like that's things cool. with character and soul.
0: Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a it's Thanks been for awesome. having me
2: on. The only favor I ask. Please <laughs> oh, no, don't put I, this out before June nineteenth.
0: I, I, be, I won't. It'll
2: become a big clusterfuck with the Nike guys. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm excited about it, and I, I'm glad you have an interest in it too.
0: No, it's it's it sounds it's really exciting. It's really cool, and it's just yeah, like it's one of those things. And I will, I will make sure it goes right out on the the correct date. But Cheers, thanks very much. Man, I
2: appreciate it.